Okay. Well, I was thinking of things that are in the news, and I thought, well, really one of the main things that's in the news just now is uh, finance and economics and that kind of thing. So I thought, what, what's poetry got to say about that? <clears throat> and there's quite a lot. If you just put in poetry and banks into Google, you can get some really bad rhyming poetry about poetry and banks. And people who are feeling, quite rightly, very indignant, and they've taken to verse to say, um, you know, that the bankers are no good and things are a mess. Um, I wanted to give a sense of somebody who thought about money, uh, which is a really important topic, in a different sort of way. So I've got this poem called, very clearly, Money, by Philip Larkin, and I wonder whether any of you would, one of you would care to read it out for us. Do I have any volunteers? Come on, ladies. Thank you very much. That's very handy, right close to the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Money, by Philip Larkin. Quarterly is it, money reproaches me. Why do you let me lie here wastefully? I am, I am all you never had of goods and sex. You could get them still by writing a few checks. So I look at others, what they do with theirs. They certainly don't keep it upstairs. By now they have a second house and a car and wife. Clearly money has something to do with life. In fact, they have a lot in common if you inquire. You can't put off being young until you retire. And however you bank your screw, the money you save won't in the end buy you more than a shave. I listen to money singing. It's like looking down from long French windows at a provincial town. The slums, the canal, the churches ornate and mad in the evening sun. It is intensely sad. Okay, what does this say to us about money? Does it start off somewhere and end up somewhere that you didn't expect? Would anybody like to offer an opinion about how they found this thing? You just enjoy yourself while you can until you retire because of the things you can't enjoy after you retire. <laughs> okay. Was it message clear in your case? <laughs> uh, anybody else? Let me think about... There's how very sad it is that there are still slums and still the ornate churches as well. Ah. Okay, so playing with that, the slums and the churches, you see a contrast there that he's talking about. This lady here. Just one moment. I think just listening to it, I haven't really read it properly, is it starts enthusiastically and it ends sad. And to me, it's almost like life, right? You start as a child being, you know, very hopeful, thinking lots of great things that are going to happen, all the things you could do with your money if you had it. But at the end, that's not the. Happiness. Money is not 
Did it surprise you, perhaps, that money has a soul? I listen to money speak, sing. What's, what do we, there's a phrase um, that's just beyond the tip of my tongue that we usually say about money. Money, thank you, yes, that's it, thank you, money talks. And do you think that money, therefore, is a quite a straightforward thing, you know, something that you might have a kind of everyday conversation with? But he listens to money singing. What's the difference between singing and talking? Talking is sensible and logical and, you know, of course... Um, you know, all in financial terms and such, whereas singing we do for joy and all this. But unfortunately the song is a sad song. It's a very sad song because it tells, tells us about the difference that money makes, the slums and the splendor of churches ornate and mad. Well, that is something, isn't it, now? And there's also something else. Hang on, where was it? Um, you can't... You can't put off uh, being young until you retire. Putting off young until you retire. And in fact, there's a lot of truth in that. Yes. Because when you are young and you can do all these fun things, you don't have the means to do so and you work yourself to death for this stuff called money. And then when you're old and you can't do things so much anymore for um, physical reasons, you now have got the freedom to do all these wonderful things which you missed and it's all to do with money there's, there's so much in that poem it's actually quite wonderful thank you I think too that um, the last week I've got a really um, has made a very good point about money singing being something that you do for joy but there's also a kind of seductiveness we use that word siren song don't we so when we listen to money singing, it says, oh, you can buy houses and you can buy cars, um, you can afford a divorce, you can have a second wife, <laughs> uh, you can pay for children, you can pay for sex, so you don't even have to have a relationship, you can just buy it all. Money is very, very seductive. Um, and he listens to it singing, and some of that seduces the speaker as well, because he's laying it all out for us. And then, I think it's wonderful the way, at the end, it just turns all that straightforwardness on its head, and you suddenly get slums, canals, and the provincial town, and you don't know quite where you're being taken. And I think that's one of the joys of poetry, you never know quite where you're going to be taken. And maybe when you're thinking about that poem and take it away with you, it will give you a more nuanced approach to money. Um, or perhaps it says to you things that you've felt already about money but hadn't quite thought about. And I think that's a very different kind of news, if you like, about money than you will get from the newspapers where you can hear it singing. So let's think about another thing that comes into the news a lot and is obviously always with us. 
and there is war. And it was very hard for me to choose a war poem, because there are a lot of them, and a lot of them are very good. A lot of them are not so good. Um, you can see why they've been written. They've been written out of anger, they've been written out of distress, they've been written out of terror, and they speak to us as the newspapers speak to us, with a kind of immediacy that we do respond to. But I think this poem by Randall Jarrell, who's, as you see from his dates, um, he was a 20th century American poet, um, and he did fight in the Second World War, and, uh, well, he was an air instructor, actually, and um, wrote some very interesting poems about the war. He was also a deeply civilised and well-read man, and some of that comes out from this poem. Is there anybody who would like to read it for us? Oh, thank you. Eighth Air Force by Randall Jarrell. If, in an odd angle of the hutment, a puppy laps the water from a can of flowers, and the drunk sergeant shaving whistles, Oh, Paradiso, shall I say that man is not, as men have said, a wolf to man? The other murderers troop in, yawning. Three of them play pitch. One sleeps, and one lies counting missions. Lies there, sweating, to leave in his heartbeats. One, one, one. Oh, murderers. Still, this is how it's done. This is a war. But since these play before they die, like puppies with their puppy, since a man I did as these have done, but did not die, I will content the people as I can and give up these to them. Behold the man. I have suffered in a dream because of him many things. For this last saviour, man, I have lied as I lie now. But what is lying? Men wash their hands in blood as best they can. I find no fault in this just man. Um, one thing that struck me was the line breaks, how you really had to um, think ahead um, and, and that made me think about what he was saying as well, so that was a structure thing. Um, the other thing is this is not an easy easy poem to, to take in with one reading. Um, I think I'd have to read it several times before totally... T it's obviously a hugely... A, a poem that's hugely compassionate towards soldiers, um, which I think is kind of, Well, it's maybe not that unusual, but that's what struck me about it. There's a deep compassion and, and tenderness there for, for soldiers having to do what they do. 
Thank you. Anybody else? What was your first impression on hearing it? So beautifully read. And I think that uh, Sheila was right in saying that the line breaks make you pause and therefore you're sort of feeling your way. As she said, as she read it, you could feel the poet feeling their way also with the thought and taking us with him, I think. Is there somebody else who would like to make any kind of comment on the poem? Ah, I hope I heard correctly, I don't have a copy of the poem, but the phrase behold the man, yes. um, Eki Homo, yes. just leapt out at me yes. because it's the association of the soldiers with Christ of his suffering and in a sense seeing the suffering of Christ in them that leapt out at me. Yeah, thank you. And you've picked up there on a whole network of meaning, which I think you will pick up more when you read the poem. I mean, there's, there's a lot of biblical um, phrasing and indeed um, um, background embedded in the poem. I think there was somebody here who wanted to say that. Uh, so sort of continuing on that bit, because I'm actually home, that's, that's Pontius Pilate, isn't it? Yes. And we're then picking up the, the it's kind of wash his hands, wash his hands, but wash his hands in blood as best as I can. And he's saying, behold the man, which is actually not about, just about sympathising with the soldiers, it's about giving them up, it's about holding them, you know, Pontius you know, Pilate was giving it to the mob, giving it to the people. He's condemning the soldiers, but at the same time, knowing it's not right, knowing that it's more complicated than that. But he feels a need to, because he wants to blame something, wants to blame someone. You know, washing hands in the blood, it's, it's complicated. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, think that's, that, I think that's really good. The, the, the feeling that you are both tender and compassionate and at the same time you are holding people up for judgment, as you said. What came over to me was the, the feeling of these young men playing like puppies. Um, you know, what you, you could feel yourself there with them and, you know, envying them, their youth and their energy and also being aware of what we are asking them to do because they, they are possibly conscripts. I don't know when the poem was written, but, um, you know, they are doing our dirty work continually for, um, for I suppose, our freedom particularly in the, in the Second World War, that's one yes. So I, I, you know, I've got the contrast of them and us. Thank you. I love that puppy at the beginning too, and you know, he's lapping from a can of flowers, so it's almost yes. pastoral and pretty, isn't it? And then you get this a gentleman here. Um, sorry, I seem to be the only person who got have almost completely different sort of things out of it. Maybe I, maybe I sort of thought of it differently, but it was more than in this last line of the, the double meaning of just, yes. in terms of like justice, because there's been a lot of people who've been feeling from this about sort of feeling compassion from the soldiers, for the soldiers, and about their sacrifice and everything else like that. But he's also saying at the start, just because they're they're all playing. Just because the scene just now is serene, 
it doesn't mean that they're not all murderers and man is not just fault to man. Yeah. And, and at, the at the bottom, you could see it in terms of this double meaning of just war and everything else like that, or just that there is no fault in this, it's, it's just men. Yes. It's just the way that it is. Yes. Um, so, so I just wanted to see that as a... Oh, thank you for bringing that out, because I think, I think it depends, you know, if the reader out loud had just made a fractional pause and said, I, fault, I find no fault in this just man, then, then exactly what you're saying comes up. You know, there's no blame attached. It's just the way men are, or humankind is. Um, and that early, that early contrast between the sergeant's shaving, oh, paradiso. Actually, I have to confess, I went on the web and said, uh, is there a song called Oh Paradiso? And came up with a Luciano Pavarotti, uh, singing this quite obscure to me aria from um, La Fricana by Maya Beer, um, uh, rather beautifully, but um, you didn't have to know that. If you do know it, actually, it, it's quite interesting because it has another, it adds another layer to it, but you don't have to get that. The feeling is that there is a bit of paradise, as you were saying, the puppies, the playfulness, and then, as you were saying, wonderful phrasing, the other murderers. And yawning. So you've got all the loveliness and then the other murderers, and that already takes you back to that nice person playing with the puppy who is also one of the murderers. Anybody else got any reflection on this part? I just, I, I wanted to put it in front of you because I feel that it immensely complicates as you said, our reaction um, to soldiers and war, you know. There's either the hero headlines or there's the, the murdering headlines. And it is incredibly complicated and a poet can afford to complicate things. Um, there's lots in here that's taken from biblical reference. It's Pilate's wife, you remember, who has the dream and sends out a little note to him saying, don't do anything about the man because I've had this dream that something terrible will happen. And that's all absorbed into that poem as well. Um, and, he, and that man being a wolf to man, it's, um, it's an old quotation from, from a Roman source, but it's also very interesting that Thomas Hobbes, who felt so strongly uh, about men, t took it up and said... Uh, to speak impartially, both things are very true, that man to man is a kind of God and that man to man is an arrant wolf. The first is true if we compare citizens among themselves and the second if we compare cities. So Hobbes is thinking that in our lovely civil society where everybody's friendly, you can see all the wonderful things that man does and invents and is capable of. But when you pit communities against communities, then man is a wolf to man. And so you don't have to know that again, but if you bring it to the poem or find it out, then that's another layer added. So I think for me it's a very resonant poem, and because it was written in the, first, in the Second World War, that whole business of justice was a just war. It comes up in, in that too. 
So, you know, newspaper headlines are one thing, but a poem allows a little more reflection. Um, I wanted to look at something about ecology and the environment. Um, and I've chosen The Wishing Tree by Kathleen Jamer. So you will know her work. Would anybody like to read that chorus? Thank you. The Wishing Tree by Kathleen Jamie. I stand neither in the wilderness nor dairy land, but in the fold of a green hill, and tilt from one parish into another. Sorry, I think we if you just hold it quite close, that's it. Okay. Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you. To look at me through a smear of rain is to taste the iron in your own blood. Because I hoard the common currency of longing, each wish, each secret assignation, my limbs lift, scabbed with greenish coins, I draw into my slow wood, fleur-de-lis, enthroned Britannia. Behind me, the land reaches towards the Atlantic, and though I'm poisoned, choking on the small change of human hope, daily beaten into me. Look, I'm still alive, in fact, in part. Okay. So, uh, when you were reading that, um, did anything occur to you in particular? Did you, do you know what a wishing tree is? I don't know much about a wishing tree at all. I presume you make a wish. <laughs> if you put a coin in. Yes. yes. Uh-huh. No, I'll pass on to someone. <laughs> Anybody want to make any comments on this one? Thank you. Might be the main thing, but always going back to the, uh, the what was it the 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 sense of being in between. I think it's often, sort of, often the occupation of poets not being quite of the world, but also not quite escaping it either. But, where is it? And, uh, they tilt from one parish into another. And I think, you know, I, I, think the, I think the poet in the wishing tree, you know, it's, it's, the poet has people's dreams, his ideas, you know, her own, it's sort of her own dreams and insider, but they are wishes, aren't they? It's not that it's hopes and aspirations. It's not. It's not real life, is it? It's it's in yeah you know, that in between bits. I think which poets often there's a lot in that. That's a very nice thought, and I, it hadn't even occurred to me that it was about the act of writing a poem itself, um, which I think I'm going to brood on now, um, but not in public. I'll do it later. <laughs> um, but this idea of being between things, I think, is really is really one of the things about poetry is that, of course, it can simply say things plainly. Um, My heart is like a singing bird. Um, It can say um, sad things plainly. But its strength is its very ambiguity, that you and you might feel quite differently about the same poem. And one of the difficulties, I think, about school 
readings of poems is that children often feel that there's a right answer. And I find this, I, I try to combat this wherever I come across this. I don't feel that there is a right answer. And the poem is infinitely, a good poem is infinitely expandable. There are not right answers. There are bits and pieces of answers and you might eventually put together a reading of the poem that satisfies you and then somebody will come along and say something quite different and you're, you're made to look at it differently. So I think there's a point about being comfortable with ambiguity and that's what newspapers are not about, ambiguity. Um, but I think that some poems allow it and if you're, if you're willing to go with that, to feel perhaps that they've come down neither on one side nor the other, um, you know, go with it. But I love this image of the wishing tree. I mean, that it is a vital and natural thing and that we, ourselves, with the best intentions in the world, are killing it. Because, you know, we're putting metal into, into wood. And, it's, you know, I, I feel that it's very much uh, a sample of what we do in this world, that we put our own wishes above maybe a more general good. Um, but Kathleen Jamie is saying something here maybe about nature fighting back. Or do you feel that she's saying nature can take us and still be okay? Or is she saying, or, or not? <laughs> um, I don't know whether you feel in the end that you've made a positive journey with this poem or not. So I'm just going to leave it with you. But I think it's, um, I think she's a wonderful poet and she's just got a book of essays out called Sightlines. For those of you who loved um, Findings, then you'll be looking forward to Sightlines and she's got a new book of poems coming out in um, the autumn, I believe. Okay, I'm going to look at something in the last five minutes that's quite personal. Um, and that is Loch Tom. So this is not about things that you'll find in the newspaper. This is the news of yourself, if you like. Um, and it's by that very great... Oh, I haven't... Has your copy got his name on it? I hope so. W.S. Graham. Very, very great Scottish poet, I think. Not well known. Um, and you tell me who's heard of Wow. Now, he'll be a great discovery for you. He, he lived down in Greenock, and then he um, migrated to Cornwall, and that's where he lived for most of his life. So he's hard to kind of absorb into the great Scottish pantheon of poets, but I think he is a very great poet. And this is his poem about going home. Would anybody care to read it? Good. Loch Tom. You see, I can't even say Loch Tom. <laughs> Loch Tom. Just for the sake of recovery, I walked backward from 56. Quick years of age wanting to see and managed not to trip or stumble to find Loch Tom and turned round to see the stretch of my childhood before me. Here is the loch. 
The same long-beaked cry curls across the heather edges of the water held between the hills a boyhood's walk up from Greenock. It is the morning. And I'm here with my mammy's bramble jam scones in my pocket. The Firth is miles and I have come back to find Loch Tom. Maybe in this light does not recognise me. This is a lonely freshwater loch. No farms on the edge. Only heather, grouse moor stretching down to Greenock and one Hope Street or stretching away across into the moors of Ayrshire. And almost I'm back again, wadding the heather down to the edge to sit. The minnows go by in shoals, like iron filings to the shallows. My mother is dead. My father is dead, and all the trout I used to know, leaping from their sad rings, are dead. I drop my crumbs into the shallow weed for the minnows and pinheads. You see that I will have to rise and turn around and get back where I'm running, my running age will slow for a moment to let me on. It is a colder stretch of water than I remember. The curlew's cry to travelling still kills me fairly. In front of me, the grouse flurry and settle. Go back, go back, go back. Farewell, locked home. So, Anita, <laughs> what kind of journey do you think you've been on in that poem? Where's it taken you? Um, I guess at a different point you were not knowing anything about the poet at all, so I wasn't sure where we, when I started reading it where he was in terms of how long ago this was, you know, this, and so getting that sense of actually this was back to um, back to childhood, rediscovering things, glimpses of memories, but then re the the the, my mother is dead, my father is dead. It, it, he's in a very, he's, he's very distant from it now. And I think that started to come through. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. And other people here surely have had the experience of going back to your childhood landscape. Did it connect you with it or did it make you feel a stranger where you were once at home? I think it's a very, very deep feeling in us. Um, and I could really spend um, a good half hour <laughs> talking with you about this. Um, even, even the wonderful, you say you don't know where he came from, but actually he lived at One Hope Street. And um, it's great that you just get that word hope at the end of the line. You know, he placed it very carefully. Um, and thinking about that distance. Um, is there anybody who would like to say anything about this poem before we close? Yeah. Um, 
to me, the, 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 there's, there's a line there that really kind of summarised a lot of things that the poem's trying to do. When he says, I turn round and get back to where my running, a- running age will slow for a moment to let me on. And it's about, you get this image of a uh, hourglass, you know, <laughs> your life running through it, and he's, he's trying to just stop it. He's trying to capture that time in his past when people were alive and uh, he was young. And it's the poem's about trying to just stop everything and, and recapture that. And I thought that, that was really powerful. Thank you. And heaven's sake, he was only 56, you know. <laughs> this, this worries me. <laughs> um, absolutely. Or perhaps even I had a vision in my head of, um, you know, of a carousel. You know, and trying to step on or or off it. Um, My running age was slow per moment, but that's very nice, that hourglass notion. Um, And are we. Sorry. Um, I just wanted to reflect, it's quite interesting that you've chosen this poem, because yesterday I was on the internet looking for a cottage that I used to visit when I was a child um, in Strathdawn. And because uh, I'd really like to go back. Well, this is what I thought before I started looking. And uh, I couldn't find an image of the cottage, but I found a, a watercolour painting that somebody had done, which was really evocative for me. But underneath it, it said, the house has now been completely refurbished and remodelled. <laughs> yes. And I thought, maybe I shouldn't go back. <laughs> is there anybody else? I, I, I guess, oh, thank you. I think he's also regretting that a way of life is gone because not only is his mother and father dead, but the trout that were in the mm-hmm. lock are dead as well, and things are changing. Yeah. yeah. It's not nostalgic, it's a nostalgic poem about something that has passed. Yeah, I think so. Thank you. Just a very quick bit. Just the line, it's a cold, it's a cold stretch of water and I remember. Yeah. I think that sticks out quite a lot because some of the other poets, it's quite lyrical, it's quite complicated language, Well, that's very conversational, yes. so it cuts through. I think he, he is a very conversational poet. He wrote a lot of letters, so he was... Um, he was involved with the sort of artist colony in Cornwall, and he wrote several letters to, to the poets involved, uh, to the painters there. And I think he does, after his early period, when he wrote quite Dylan Thomas-ish sort of uh, writing, he then wrote very direct poems, and he's very concerned. He says, what is the language using us for? Which is a wonderful question for a poet, but indeed for us to ask ourselves, you know, what is the language using us for? Um, I think we're coming to a close, and I want to, I realised after I had chosen these poems that they were really quite melancholy, <laughs> um, and I wouldn't want you to go away with the feeling that poetry was necessarily, um, if reflective, then melancholy. So I'm going to read a last poem, and it's a poem that some of you will know. Um, some poets... Uh, 
associated with a particular poem. And um, I suppose to some extent you might say that Edgar Morgan and his strawberries were um, maybe the first things that came to mind for you if you mentioned his name. Or you might think, uh, some of you will know there's a poem um, by Jenny Joseph called um, When I'm Old, I'll Wear Purple. Yes, uh, quite a lot of you will know that. Um, and um, actually, I thought of Yeats when I was reading that poem because it says, I will arise, and you, you probably know his poem, I will arise and go to um, Innisfree. So there are some poems that just kind of stick to poets like birds, and some of them are happy about that, but some of them are really not. There's a fantastic poem about Scotland by Alistair Reid. Have I got time to read two poems? Okay, do you mind? Okay, two poems. This is a poem that's stuck to a poet, and he's quite cross about it. <laughs> but, uh, and I saw him at St Andrews, as some of you here perhaps did, um, reading it out and then burning the piece of paper symbolically, saying, that's, that's an end to that, I'm not reading this poem anymore. But of course, one of the reasons it's become so popular is because it says something that we all believe, and it's Alistair Reed's poem about Scotland. Um, so, uh, yes, one second, five. Okay, so some of you will know this. <clears throat> So, Alistair Reed, splendidly is still with us, born in 1926, lives in New York a lot of the time, Scotland. It was a day peculiar to this piece of the planet, when larks rose on long, thin strings of singing, and the air shifted with the shimmer of actual angels. Greenness entered the body. The grasses shivered with presences and sunlight stayed like a halo on hair and heather and hills. Walking into town, I saw in a radiant raincoat the woman from the fish shop. What a day it is, cried I, like a sunstruck madman. And what did she have to say for it? Her brow grew bleak. Her ancestors raged in their graves as she spoke with their ancient misery. We all pay for it. We all pay for it. We all pay for it. So that poem, you can see why that strikes such a deep cause in everybody who lives in Scotland, um, but Alistair's really tired of it. Um, you know, I've read another poem. And this is a poem that Sheena Pugh is tired of, but, and she is now living in Shetland, um, but it's a poem that people really love and have found an enormous comfort in. And I think that she can't disown it. Indeed, she sort of put it out there on the web and said, you know, anybody can do anything they like, but just don't come to me about it because I'm tired of it. But if you don't know it, um, I hope you'll really like it. And if you do know it, I'm sure you won't mind hearing it read. And I just want to say thank you very much for the quality of your listening. It's been very um, lovely for me to be here. Sometimes. Sometimes, think, sometimes things don't go, after all, from bad to worse. Some years, muscadel faces down frost. Green thrives. The crops don't fail. Sometimes a man aims high and all go 
goes well. A people sometimes will step back from war, elect an honest man, decide they care enough that they can't leave some stranger poor. Some men become what they were born for. Sometimes our best efforts do not go amiss. Sometimes we do as we meant to. The sun will sometimes melt a field of sorrow that seemed hard frozen. It may happen for you. this Wednesday in the morning um, you'll see the stuff on the leaflets there's the Great Hillhead Bake Off and if you're interested in getting your hands into baking and decorating cakes then you're welcome here in the morning all the details that do it next Saturday in the afternoon an experiment for this year's festival we're having a storytelling event and this is storytelling for adults not for children um, and if you're you, there's leaflets on the tables and they'll be given to you to go out the door as well um, as well as the Hillhead Bake Off leaflets Please, if you're interested, do come to that next Saturday afternoon. Um, and I think that's probably... Oh, no, I'm cross-selling again. Um, up at Cottier's Theatre at four o'clock, um, last week was James McMillan in conversation. This week it's Michael Tumulty in conversation. So if you're interested in more conversation, four o'clock up at Cottier's Theatre. All that remains to, uh, to be said is thank you so much for coming. These events wouldn't happen if we didn't all turn up. So in thanking Robin again, we thank each other. Thank you very much. <laughs>